Philemon, we begin at the very beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia, and our Chippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Whenever I read through uh, this epistle to Philemon, uh, it always comes to mind the way one of my professors at BJU described the setting here of Paul. This professor pointed out that usually when Paul wrote his epistles, he would make little or nothing of the fact that he was in prison, as he was when he wrote this epistle, and a number of others. He wouldn't make a big deal out of that. And in fact, uh, when he wrote to the Philippians, he saw that his own imprisonment was actually a contributing factor to the advancement of the gospel. Even at a time when the temptation would have been strong to think that the gospel was being hampered or restrained, uh, Paul said, not at all. It's being advanced. I'm giving it to everyone that's around me, even in Caesar's household. Well, in contrast to that, this professor went on to note, when you come to this epistle to Philemon, it's as if Paul is taking his prison chains and he's rattling them before Philemon now in such a way as to gain sympathy from Philemon. 
This becomes uh, uh, evident in verse 9, where he says, Yet for love's sake I'd rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You can see how he's appealing to Philemon's sympathy now. I'm up in years, I'm in prison, and so I'm appealing to you now, Philemon, uh, to receive back this runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. That's really the thrust of the letter. Now Philemon has long been viewed as a unique letter among Paul's epistles, not only because it's the shortest of his epistles, but also because it's the most personal. And I think that comes out in what I just described. Would you notice, however, that even though Philemon is addressed personally and primarily, he's not the only one addressed in this epistle. Notice the words again, verses 1 and 2 at the very beginning. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia, and our Chippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. You see in these opening verses that the epistle bears the marks of Paul's other letters, and that Paul brings Timothy into play as being one of the authors of this epistle. He does that very often. I can't think of an instance, maybe there is one, I can't think of it offhand, where Paul doesn't bring in his associates into the letters that he writes as well. Makes me wonder if maybe Paul had Timothy read the epistle before it got sent out or have him somehow approve it or edit it in some way or fashion, perhaps making suggestions about the content of the epistle. You'll also notice that the epistle, in addition to being addressed to Philemon, is also addressed to Aphia. Aphia is a feminine word, which leads many commentators to suggest that she may have been Philemon's wife. And then note also that the epistle is addressed to a man by the name of Archippus. Some have suggested that Archippus may have been Philemon's son, or he may have been Philemon's minister. But not only is the epistle addressed to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus, but it's also addressed to the church in thy house. So this letter was to be read to everyone. It's a personal letter to be sure, but it was not designed, you know, simply to be correspondence between Paul and Philemon. Uh, this can be recognized, this epistle can be recognized as a church epistle. Now Philemon is generally recognized to be a wealthy man, probably lived in a large estate which made it possible for him to host the church's worship services in his house, written at a time when church buildings probably haven't even come into existence yet. So even though this letter deals with Philemon as its primary character, the epistle, as I say, can also be classified as a church epistle. But we can go a step further and suggest that this epistle was not only to be read to the church that met in the house of Philemon, but it was to be read in other churches as well. Near the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we read some very specific instructions about the reading of a certain epistle. Listen to these words from Colossians 4, beginning in verse 15, where Paul says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, 
cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, here's the same character that we've referenced now in Philemon, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. So it's entirely possible that this epistle to Philemon is this epistle to the Laodiceans that Paul is making reference to here, and that this Archippus is the same as we find mentioned in the verses we read from Philemon. This passage may be the the basis for suggesting that Archippus was Philemon's minister, And you see the picture that emerges now by comparing the epistle to the Colossians with the epistle to Philemon. It's also possible that Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which was written about the same time as Colossians and written from prison like Colossians and like Philemon, was also included in the group of letters to be read so that Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon were all to be read in these various churches. So even though, like I say, the correspondence was personal, uh, yet I, I, I guess you could call it, in a sense, an open letter uh, to Philemon, that it was to be read in other places as well. And obviously it's to be read by us as God has inspired it and preserved it. And when you look at the content of what Paul writes to Philemon, it becomes apparent why Paul, or better yet, why the Lord himself would want this letter to have wide circulation. There are things, you see, that are found in this epistle to Philemon that you won't find anywhere else in the New Testament. You're aware, I'm sure, if you're familiar with this letter at all, that the letter to Philemon has to do with a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. Paul is appealing to Philemon to receive this runaway slave that Paul is sending back to him. And not only to receive him, but to receive him graciously. And not only to receive him graciously, but to recognize him not merely as a slave or a servant, one who had evidently wronged Philemon in some way. Don't receive him back now simply as a slave uh, that ought to be punished for his crimes, but instead receive him back as a brother in Christ. Paul had won Onesimus, the runaway slave, to the Lord. This runaway slave gained a saving interest in Christ. Verses 15 and 16, note what they say. For perhaps he, that is Onesimus, perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldst receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now some take these verses, verses 15 and 16, to be at the very least a seed sown, which would eventually bring an end to the institution of slavery. That may or may not be the case. It would certainly bring about at any rate, a new perspective, a new and a different perspective as to how Christian slaves should be viewed. For Philemon is being instructed now, receive him back as a brother in Christ. In a sense, he's an equal with you now, Philemon. Oh, you're the wealthy one. You're the one in charge. You're the master. He's the servant. But you're both servants to Christ. You're both brothers in Christ. So, that's the thrust of the epistle. This morning, however, I want to call your attention to something else that I think is unique to this epistle. 
And that is Paul's prayer for Philemon. I find this to be a prayer unlike any other prayer of Paul in any of his epistles. Look at how Paul prays, beginning in verse 4. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. I don't know of any other petition like that one in the entire New Testament. Underscore those words that the communication of thy faith may become effectual. Communicating our faith is a duty that's incumbent upon each and every Christian. And indeed, not only is such communication the Christian's duty, but it ought to be his deep desire. I'm reminded that so often when Christ performed miracles during his earthly ministry, he would tell the recipient of those miracles not to make a big deal of it. Don't tell anybody about this. And no matter how much Christ admonished them to keep silent, they couldn't. Uh, I've, I've got to tell everyone. I've regained my sight. I've had demons cast out of me. Or I've been healed of paralysis. Nobody could keep quiet who had been the recipient of a miracle of Christ, Christ's admonition notwithstanding. Well, you know, you can draw an analogy from that to our own Christian lives. We ought not to keep silent either. When you consider what we've received, when you consider that our spiritual lives have been opened, our spiritual hearing has been unstopped, our hearts have been renewed, we have been, uh, spiritually speaking, resurrected from the dead. How can you keep quiet about that? Oh, you would want everyone to know. So, as I say, uh, not only is the communication of our faith a Christian's duty, it should be his deep desire. A Christian, after all, is someone who has learned the truth. He's learned the truth about sin and judgment and hell. He's learned the truth about Christ and about salvation in Christ. And the Christian wants others to gain what he himself has gained. And the way that comes about is through the communication of his faith. But that's not all the Christian wants. He wants the communication of his faith to become effectual. What the verse says, verse 6. And the word effectual comes from the Greek word from which we get our English word energy. He wants the communication of his faith, in other words, to be energized. He wants it to be blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit so that it has a powerful and even a saving impact upon those that he communicates it to. So that's what I want to call your attention to today. The communication of your faith, or better still, the effectual communication of your faith. Paul is very helpful in this letter to Philemon in teaching us how to equip ourselves for the communication of our faith. So that's my theme this morning, equipping ourselves for the communication of our faith. Simply put, we must equip ourselves for the communicating of our faith. And in the moments that remain, I want to address the matter of how that's done. How do we equip ourselves for the communication of our faith? Well, consider with me, first of all, that when it comes to communicating our faith, there are certain prerequisites 
that have to be implemented first. The prerequisites to equipping ourselves. And by prerequisite, okay, I mean some things that have to happen first. Whenever I hear that term prerequisite, I'm always reminded of college days, you know. You cannot take English 102 uh, without uh, first taking the prerequisite to it, which is English 101, okay? Uh, You'd be in over your head. You wouldn't understand what was going on. So that's what I mean when I utilize the term prerequisite. There are some things that must come first. Look at verses 4 and 5, which tell us what uh, led Paul to pray the way he did for Philemon. He says in verse 4, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, and then underscore this next part, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Hearing of thy love and faith. This is what drove Paul to pray. For Philemon, he heard about his love and he heard about his faith. It was Paul's hearing of their love and faith that drove him to prayer. This is what also compelled Paul to pray for the saints at Ephesus. Ephesians 1.15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And you'll find a similar expression, nearly an identical expression as that, in Paul's letter to the Colossians as well. He heard of their faith and love. And so faith and love, then, are the prerequisites that I have in mind just now. Faith in Christ and love for the brethren, or love for Christ and love for the brethren. These things are what's needed in order to communicate our faith. Faith in Christ and love for the brethren, you see, is what reveals a believer to be genuine and sincere. Some time ago, I saw a card a laminated card in uh, the doctor's office, and it had an interesting saying on it. I've never forgotten it. It went like this. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, that really is the truth, isn't it? Nobody cares how much you know unless or until they know how much you care. And that certainly is the case when it comes to communicating our faith. You may have the ability to talk about the deep things of God. You may know the languages, the original languages of the Bible. And maybe you've read all the classics in theology. Until souls can tell that you love Christ and you care for their souls, the most you'll communicate is that maybe you've managed to make uh, a good hobby out of theology. There are people, you know, that do that. I've met them along the way. They, they, they find something fascinating about making theology um, their hobby. And they know a lot and they've read a lot, but you can't tell that they care and you can't tell that they love Christ. Quite often our attitude toward communicating our faith is that We have to know so much. And one of the things that maybe hinders us at times is we don't feel that we know nearly enough. I have to be able to anticipate the responses that I'm going to receive from people I communicate my faith to. And I've got to be ready to answer the objections that they may raise. And if I can't respond to every objection then I'm not really equipped to communicate my faith. I must first, therefore, master the science of what we sometimes call apologetics. You ever heard the term apologetics? It's kind of a misnomer, you know. Um, We're not apologizing for being Christians. That's what the term could be 
understood to mean if you just uh, gauge yourselves by the modern use of the term. But the, the, the term apologetics has to do with defending the faith. Okay? I, I, I must uh, get a better handle on defending the faith or apologetics before I'm ready to communicate my faith. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. There is a place for apologetics. And we should equip ourselves in such a way that we can answer objections. Although I might point out to you that there's no possible way that you can prepare yourself for every objection you're going to hear. Some of them are just so strange and off the wall, you couldn't possibly prepare for them. They'll, they'll shock you with, uh, well, how stupid they are, I suppose. Peter writes in his first epistle, 1 Peter 3.15, and we read this chapter earlier, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. There's apologetics. Give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's a key verse that is recognized in the realm of Christian apologetics. And there are many good resources that a Christian can utilize to help equip himself in this regard. R.C. Sproul has a great series on defending the faith. I've listened to it two or three times. Josh McDowell, you're familiar with Josh McDowell? He was associated, I don't know if he still is, but he was associated with Campus Crusade for Christ. He wrote a book years ago called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then he wrote uh, more evidence that demands a verdict. And then he added a third volume even to that. And the last time I checked, all three of those volumes have been uh, merged together into a single volume. So you can get all three volumes in one. Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Ray Comfort's YouTube videos. Boy, there's a channel you want to subscribe to. This man goes around to college campuses and he debates students and teachers about various aspects of the Christian faith. Very entertaining and very instructive. You tune in to Ray Comfort's YouTube videos. These things are well and good and useful, but would you notice that in Peter's key verse on apologetics, he begins with much the same thing that the Apostle Paul is stating in our text. Peter's starting point is sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. Okay? And how is that done? How do we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts? Well, basically, you must exercise that faith and love that Paul had heard of with regard to Philemon and the saints at Ephesus, and the saints at Colossae. Faith and love for Christ and love for the Lord's people, as well as love for lost souls. One preacher of old said, this was Donald Barnhouse, old Presbyterian minister, he said this, Men may not read the gospel in cowhide leather skin or in cloth covers, but they can't get away from the gospel in shoe leather. Hmm. An interesting statement, isn't it? And I think you know what he means by it. In other words, they can't get away from the gospel that they see lived out in your life, a life of faith and love. We read from 1 Peter 3 earlier. Did you notice uh, in the beginning of that chapter, how Paul calls upon wives to win their husbands to Christ through their chaste conversation that they will observe in their spouses. Oh, the way you live is essential to the communicating of your faith. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 2, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And so I wonder this morning, borrowing from the use that Paul makes of this language, um, how do men read you? 
do men read you? Years ago when I preached through the book of Acts, I focused on chapter 11 and verse 26, that part of the verse that says, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. It's a matter of some debate about the use of that term as it was first applied to the believers in Antioch. There are those that think it was uh, a derisive term, an insulting term given by Christ rejectors to Christians. There are others, and Dr. Cairns would have fallen into this category, who was very much of the belief that, no, it was God himself that devised this term and applied it to those that were followers of Christ. The point that I made from the text when I preached on it, and this is a point that is beyond controversy, is that it was someone else who called the disciples Christians. The disciples were called Christians, it says. doesn't say they called themselves Christians. No, it was someone else that called them Christians. And so the challenge we face today is this. Does anybody call you a Christian? Do those around you know that you're a Christian? Do the people you work with know that you believe in Jesus Christ? Or do you blend in with the world so much that the world identifies you as one of their own? Paul heard of the faith and love of Philemon, and he heard of the faith and love of the saints at Ephesus and the saints at Colossae. Do people hear of your faith and love? Can they tell you identify with Christ and that you worship and serve Christ and that you have a heart for Christ's people as well as a heart for lost souls? These are the prerequisites to communicating our faith. And these prerequisites can only be cultivated by seeking after Christ ourselves in his word and demonstrating your faith by your works. A demonstrated faith. I was very tempted to read from James' epistle uh, in connection with the message this morning, but First Peter 3 seemed fine. But these are the things we have to have, brethren, sisters. We have to have faith and love, faith in Christ, a demonstrated faith and a demonstrated love so that others hear of it and others take note. There is someone who loves the Lord. There is some, No matter what I think of Christ, no matter what I think of that religion, no matter how much I may hold it into contempt, there is a real Christian. I remember a man I used to work with in the printing industry, and uh, I witnessed to him, and I remember he, him telling me that he had been witnessed to countless times by any number of other people that he had come into contact with. And then he said to me, you know, there were areas in my life in which I manifested more integrity than they did. And uh, he was very much of the opinion that only a very small handful of those that attempted to witness to him uh, really had a life that could demonstrate genuineness and sincerity in giving such a witness. I was very grateful that he put me in that category by the grace of God. So that's the first thing that must be tended to in our lives in the matter of communicating our faith, the prerequisites. Would you consider with me next our aim in communicating our faith? Our aim or our goal. What are we looking to accomplish when we communicate our faith? And our aim is that the communication of our faith may be, to use Paul's term, effectual. 
Underscore that word effectual. Notice again verse 6. That the communication of thy faith may become effectual. There's Paul's specific petition for Philemon. Not only that you communicate your faith, but that it become effectual. And the word effectual, as I pointed out in my introduction, is a word from which we get our English word energy. The word occurs some six times in the New Testament and most often refers to a form of supernatural energy or power that can only come from God. That's got to be our aim. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, Paul writes, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. What is Paul speaking of when he speaks of a great door and effectual? Well, he's speaking of an opportunity to give out the gospel to hearts that are uh, prepared and that are hearing and listening and coming to Christ. A great door and effectual. This is a powerful opportunity, Paul is saying. And even though there were adversaries Paul was quite content to stay on at Corinth to take advantage of this great door and effectual that was opened to him. Great doors of this kind can only be opened by Christ himself. It is his effectual power that opens the door of a lost man's heart. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. The effectual working of his power. And of course, if you've read the account, and I know you have, in Acts chapter 9, you have the account of Paul on the Damascus Road. What a powerful manifestation of the Lord's presence that knocked him off his high horse, uh, put him on the ground, leveled him, you could say, and had him groveling at the feet of Jesus Christ. And then the persecutor became a preacher. And you know, that continues to be a marvel even to this present hour, even to skeptics of the Bible. How could someone like Paul, in his intense animosity toward Christ in the gospel, become uh, the greatest preacher, especially to the Gentiles of the gospel? Well, that was the effectual working of God's power. And you see in that verse how Paul attributes his call to the ministry to the effectual working of God's power. And then one more specimen, if you will. This one also from Ephesians 4 and verse 16. And I love this because this is a text that applies to us here as a church family. Listen to what he says. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's really a very challenging verse to analyze, but I think you get the gist of it. Paul is talking about spiritual growth within a church. How does it happen? Well, everybody has a part to play in it happening. That's what makes you so important here this morning. You have a part to play in the building of the church, in the edifying of itself in love. This will happen according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. In other words, as God's word reaches your heart with power, it should have a transformational impact on your life which makes you take others to heart and share with them the Lord's dealings in your life in such a way that they are strengthened and encouraged and edified 
And in that way, the entire body then grows unto the edifying of itself in love in Christ. And here again, it's this divine energy that is needed within a church. That's one of the reasons, you know, that we pray on Wednesdays in the middle of the week. Lord, make your word effectual. Lord, make our gathering effectual. Nothing happens automatically. It happens spiritually, and it happens in answer to prayer. Lord, make your word effectual. Help me to come with a heart that is open to hear and heed thy words, and may it reach my heart with power and have uh, that kind of impact on my life. It's as we minister to each other then that the body increases unto the edifying of itself in love. You see what I mean then when I say that the aim in the communication of our faith is that such communication be effectual, or in other words, that it be empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. This, after all, is what happened when you gained a saving interest in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, Paul equates the salvation of a soul with God commanding the light to shine out of darkness on the first day of creation. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see how salvation takes place. You see how um, effectual power is wrought in the heart of a soul. God commands the light to shine in a darkened heart. It was the power of God's word that brought light out of darkness on the day of creation. It was when God said, let there be light that there was light. And so must it be in the communication of our faith. We need the power of God's word to be manifested again, this time in the darkened hearts of men and women. Now, in a sense, this puts the communication of our faith quite beyond us. We simply don't have the ability, do we, to command light to shine in darkened hearts. That's not something we can do. You might be tempted to ask, what's the use? What's the use of trying to communicate my faith when the salvation of a soul is quite beyond me? On the other hand, the recognition that it must be God's power is what sets you free to even attempt to communicate your faith. The salvation of a soul, you see, does not depend upon your intelligence or your persuasive abilities or your persuasive power. You don't have to be a good salesman to communicate your faith. You need instead to focus on God's Word. Know that He uses His Word and be encouraged to know that He will not allow His Word to return to Him void. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. The Lord says, Isaiah 55, verse 11, It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. That really frees us up to sow the good seed of God's word, doesn't it? Uh, God can empower his word. And um, uh, you can go to that intellectual skeptic, as it were. And you don't have to be intimidated as to whether or not you can win an argument with him. Chances are you can't. Um, but sow the seed of God's word. And, and, and let the sowing of that seed be accompanied by the prerequisites I described earlier that demonstrate you to be genuine in your faith in Christ. And God can use that. And when we recognize that the communication of our faith can only be made effectual by God himself, then it will bring us, not necessarily in pursuit 
of uh, a better organized and highly structured with a lot of content uh, evangelism program that I must master. And like I said, don't misunderstand me. Those things can be useful. But the recognition that it takes God to make the communication of our faith effectual should first bring us to our knees, seeking God to make that word effectual. And that brings me to my final point this morning in the matter of communicating our faith. We've seen the prerequisites for communication. Now we've seen our aim, that aim being that the communication of our faith be made effectual. Let's think finally and briefly on the means to achieving this aim. The means to achieving this aim. We know what the aim is now, don't we? It's to communicate our faith effectually. One of these means I've touched upon just now, it's the means of prayer. How could the communication of Philemon's faith become effectual? Well, quite obviously, it would be in answer to Paul's prayer. I thank my God making mention of the always in my prayers, verse 4, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual, verse 6. So it's prayer. Oh Lord, as I launch out into this day and you give me opportunities to sow the good seed of thy word, Lord, make it effectual as only thou canst do. Um, a simple prayer, isn't it? But an essential one. And then would you notice something very specific and very practical that Paul goes on to say in verse 6. He describes just how his prayer would be answered in the life of Philemon, and hence how it will be answered in your lives and in mine. Look again at verse 6, and notice the last part of the verse, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Take note of that. I don't know of any other English translation of the New Testament that catches the meaning so clearly as our authorized version does. The phrase, by the acknowledging of every good thing, that shows us that this acknowledgement becomes the means through which the communication of our faith is made effectual. So what are we acknowledging? Well, simply put, we're acknowledging the spiritual blessings that have come to be ours in Christ. We are acknowledging that he's forgiven our sins. We're acknowledging that he's redeemed us to his Father. We're acknowledging that he's given us his Holy Spirit, that he's adopted us into his family. We're acknowledging that he's at work in our lives, leading us in the way everlasting. You're acknowledging the blessings, simply put. Maybe I should have waited a few weeks for this sermon until we get closer to Thanksgiving. But basically, that's the point I'm making now, that your life be dominated by Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, that's not true of a lot of Christians today. A lot of Christians today are very much aware of all that's wrong in the world. Doom and gloom, and they can wax eloquent, and they can do it for a long time, giving you all that's bleak and pathetic. And uh, But you know what? The world itself knows that. That doesn't really make you much different from anyone in the world. But take that doom and gloom and that bleak outlook and all that's going to happen and the, the fear and the fright and uh, economy collapsing and going to war, etc., etc., etc. And now show me a Christian who in that setting manifests a spirit of thanksgiving instead because he recognizes that even in this kind of world, I am blessed of my God. I acknowledge every blessing of Christ that is in me. And as the truth and the reality of these blessings fill and thrill our souls, then it shows itself in our lives. 
It shows in our attitude. It shows in our demeanor. It shows in our integrity, in our uprightness. It shows in our contentment and the peace and joy that we have in Christ. Now, where does this take place? Where do we make such acknowledgments of every good thing that we have in Christ Jesus? And the answer is, we acknowledge these things in our prayers and in our worship. We're acknowledging these things this very morning in the house of God, in our worship of Christ this morning. We acknowledge that we are a blessed people as we have gathered in the name of Christ. And we should acknowledge our blessings in our family devotions and in our family uh, or in our private times of prayers. And when your blessings dominate your hearts, you see, then you become the most equipped to communicate your faith. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that when your blessings fill and thrill your souls, your witness for Christ will come quite naturally and spontaneously. You won't find yourself compelled trying to memorize a script of planned responses that lost souls may throw at you. You will, by your words and actions and attitudes, communicate the truth and the reality of your faith in Christ. So communicating our faith, it is our duty. It should be our desire. Our aim must be for this to be done effectually, which requires then the help of the Holy Spirit. We know where to go, how to tap into that help. Where was Philemon going to find the power? But Paul prayed for Philemon that the communication of his faith would be effectual. Let's make sure that we make that our habit in prayer. O Lord, grant to me what only thou canst bestow. Make the communication of my faith effectual. Help me to walk in faith in love. Help me to count my blessings so that I am equipped to be different in a world of gloom and doom and wickedness and dissatisfaction. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring our time to a close, we would make this prayer our own that Paul prayed for Philemon. Lord, may the communication of our faith be made effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in us in Christ Jesus. And we thank Thee, Lord, for those good things that we have from Christ. Oh, may the truth of them govern our hearts so that our attitudes and actions and demeanors equip us for communicating our faith in a way that thou wilt bless and make powerful. So Lord, hear our prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen.